Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Hear now these words. Right then, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side of the lake while he dismissed the crowds. And when he sent them away, he went up onto a mountain by himself to pray. Evening came and he was alone. Meanwhile, the boat, fighting a strong headwind, was being battered by the waves and was already far away from land. Very early in the morning, he came to his disciples walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. They were so frightened, they screamed. Just then Jesus spoke to them, be encouraged, it's me, don't be afraid. And Peter replied, Lord, if it's you, order me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And then Peter got out of the boat and was walking on the water towards Jesus. But when Peter saw the strong wind, he became frightened. And as he began to sink, he shouted, Lord, rescue me. And Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him, saying, You man of weak faith, why did you, have, why did you begin to have doubts? And when they got into the boat, the wind settled down. And then those in the boat worshipped Jesus and said, You must be God's son. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, and the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. When I was in college, I went to this uh, Bible, non-denominational style church uh, for about six weeks until I realized it wasn't the place for me. And uh, one of the sermons that I heard um, is maybe one that you've heard a, a similar version of before. The, the crux of the message was this anecdote that the, uh, uh, the pastor was telling about one time he was speaking at a uh, big conference. I think he partly told the story so he, he could remind us all that he was a sought-after public speaker. Um, but he, he also was talking about how at this conference there was this really terrible storm in the area uh, one day, and there was a tornado that was heading straight towards where they were gathered. And at the last second, he said that the tornado rerouted right around where we were having the conference, and then it continued on its path. And, and he shared this and said, you know, we all just started praising God and thanking God for this miracle. And there was something in me that just like didn't sit well with that. Uh, something deep within me that, that couldn't articulate theology, maybe in the way that I'm able to today after some very expensive seminary training. But, but you know, in the Methodist church, we believe that um, part of our, our, our formation of faith is not just Scripture and not just the tradition of the church, but also personal experience and our own reason. And there was something about my experience of God and my own brain that said, I don't know if miracles work that way, because what about everybody else? That was in the path of that tornado. Was that a miracle for them? What, what about the house that it hit because it went around where you were? Was that a miracle for them? Have you ever heard a story kind of like that that just didn't sit right with you? The way we talk about miracles, I think, can be unhelpful sometimes. And in fact, in some ways, it can lead people further away from faith because when you begin to pull at that thread a little further, you realize, who are these miracles for specifically? And if they're only for some and not for others. How does that work? So let's talk about storms and miracles and, and me versus us kinds of thinking this morning. Because um, there's a story in the Gospel of Matthew about a storm. And 
about a miracle that at first looks like it's intended just for one person. We even call the miracle walking on water, right? And it's the story of Jesus leading Peter to walk on water. But spoiler alert, I find the moment of Peter walking on water to be the least interesting part of this story. There's so much else happening here, and in fact, if you blink and miss the ending, you might have missed the miracle altogether. And so let's dig in a little deeper and consider what's really taking place. Is Jesus just blessing Peter with this miracle that only halfway works, or is there something more going on? In verse 22, it starts out and it says this, right then Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side of the lake. This is the Sea of Galilee, which is basically a large lake. You can look across it on a good day. Um, While he dismissed the crowds, it says. So, so, So let's talk about where this happens in terms of the story of the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 14 is an interesting chapter because right before this walking on water story, it's the feeding of the 5,000. That's the crowds that Jesus is dismissing. And, um, and, and so it's this big massive miracle where Jesus is able to uh, feed 5,000 plus men, women, and children who are gathered there to, to learn from Him and to spend the day with Him. And then on the other side of this, this lake is going to be a, a scene of Jesus again blessing a large group of people, this time through a mass healing. Uh, it's a shorter story. Not, nobody's named. There's not a lot of details, but he goes to this place, and they hear that he's there, and they come in a huge drove, and anyone who touches his clothes is healed. So in between these two massive miracles, you have this very intimate story. That's curious. Let that thread stay there for a moment. We're going to pick it up in a bit. So then it goes on to say, when he sent them away, meaning the crowds and the disciples, he went up onto a mountain by himself to pray. Evening came and he was alone. Something else to know about Matthew's gospel, chapter 14, is that the chapter begins with the death of John the Baptist, and it's a brutal, gruesome death at that. Uh, Herod, at the behest of his niece, beheads John as he's in prison, and then serves his head on a silver platter to his niece. And then the head is given to Jesus' disciples who go and bury it. It's heartbreaking. It's tragic. And Jesus, after he learns about John the Baptist's death, remember, John the Baptist isn't just a great prophet to Jesus. He's also his cousin and one of his best friends. When he learns of his execution at the hands of Herod, he attempts to go off by himself, it says. The first time he tries to go off by himself, and that's when the 5,000, the crowd of the 5,000, find him and gather around him, and his, his moment of grief is interrupted. And so even though it doesn't say it, we can read between the lines here in verse 23 and understand the reason Jesus so desperately wants to get away is because he hasn't had a proper chance to grieve his cousin's death. So he goes up to this mountain by himself to pray, and he's alone. And then the story says, meanwhile, the boat, right, the boat of the disciples, so it's, it's panning us over onto the, onto the sea, fighting against a strong headwind, it says, was being battered by the waves and was already far away from land. Now, to understand why this was so scary, this was more than just encountering a thunderstorm on a lake. Because in those days, in the Jewish tradition, when you were on a large body of water like the Sea of Galilee, you were on something incredibly dangerous. Uh, 
That was the place. Those were the places, the oceans and the seas, where the great monsters of the depths would live, those, those creatures of chaos and destruction that were little less than gods, right? And, and that's why it's so important in the Gospels and even in the book of Genesis that God expresses power over the water, specifically large bodies of water, because it was as though God was, was commanding this inherently destructive and chaotic aspect of creation that mere mortals would never be able to conquer. So when they encounter a storm on the Sea of Galilee, this isn't just like a, a scary thunderstorm. This is a life and death, spiritual uh, conquest kind of fearful moment for them where they know something greater is at work than just the clouds overhead. And it says, very early in the morning, Jesus came to His disciples walking on the lake. I imagine Jesus waking up that morning, and maybe it's fairly clear where He is. In fact, He can look out and He sees the storm on the sea. Maybe He even hears the screams of His disciples. When the disciples saw Him walking on the lake, it says they were terrified. The Greek word there is taraso. Taraso is, is like a play on words because it means to be stirred up or troubled. It's a, it's a word that you could also use to discuss water being stirred up or troubled. So it's as though that their spirits were a reflection of the waters around them, right? And they cried out. They said, it's a ghost. They were maybe afraid that they had crossed into the spirit world, which was not a place that humans wanted to go. They were so frightened, it says, they screamed. And just then... Jesus spoke to them. Be encouraged, he said. It's me. Don't be afraid. And then Peter replied, classic Peter, right? Lord, if it's you, order me to come to you on the water. He's so brave. He's so courageous. You know, Peter's also arrogant. He always has to be the first one in line. He wants to be teacher's pet. But he's human, and I love that about him. And Jesus said, Come. And then Peter got out of the boat and was walking on the water, it says, towards Jesus. But when Peter saw the strong wind, so at first he's laser-focused on Jesus, but then he sees the storm around him once again, he became frightened. Wouldn't you? As he began to sink, he shouted, Lord, rescue me! Now, I want to defend Peter for a second because, you know, I feel like we can be kind of hard on him at times. Like, I just was cracking jokes. Peter always has to be the first one in the line. He's the teacher's pet. You know, Peter is a wonderful mix of faith and faithlessness, right? He's that belief and unbelief all mixed into one. He's the one that is willing to chop off an ear to defend his friend, and he's also the one who's ready to sell his friend out once he realizes that things are getting really tough. I can identify with Peter I wonder if you can too, that there are times when I want to take that first step off of the boat and onto the water, and I think, here I come, Jesus, and then I look around and realize that my life is full of storms and chaos, and quickly I'm distracted, and before I know it, I feel like I'm drowning. Are you ever a mix of that faithful and faithlessness at times that Peter is? But here's what I love about Peter, and here's how I want to defend him today. As it says, as he begins to sink, he shouts, Lord, rescue me. 
That's interesting because it shows us that Peter has faith in Jesus not just to transcend this chaos. Not only is Jesus hovering above these waters of chaos, not is he just above it, he can actually actively work against it, and Peter believes that Jesus can pull him out of this chaos and this destruction. Peter believed that Jesus possessed not only the power to transcend the chaos, but the power to lift others out as well. And that's interesting, even from just like a physics standpoint, that he thought Jesus could could push against the waves and lift him back out on top of the water himself. Now, that power, Peter rightly identifies within Jesus. Jesus is going to spend his life's ministry pulling people out of chaos and darkness and destruction. But interestingly enough, I think Peter underestimates Jesus' power in this regard. To understand, let's go on. Jesus immediately reached out, it said. I love that. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him, saying, you man of weak faith, why did you begin to have doubts? Now, sometimes these statements from Jesus can kind of stop me down because I think that part of the life of faith is having doubts, right? All of us have doubts. All of us have questions. And I don't know that Jesus is wagging a finger at us just because we have questions about our faith at times. In fact, the language that he uses here could be more accurately translated to to be more, you know, why did your trust begin to fail? Not so much why did you have like intellectual doubts of me, but why did your trust, why did your attention, that might be another word that could be used there, why did your attention fall short? It reminds me that to walk on water, we must trust that the love of God is ultimately more powerful than a sea of destruction. Part of Peter's folly is that he looks around at the storm, and for a moment, and we all do this, for a moment he begins to think, maybe this is bigger than I thought it was. Maybe this is bigger than Jesus thinks it is. Maybe this is bigger than us. But Jesus is reminding him that it's not that, that, that like his, his internal belief or, or his intellectual belief failed him. It was that his attention, his trust in Jesus had hit pause for a moment, just enough for him to fall into the waters. Now, here's what this is not saying. I, just, I started the message talking about theology that was unhelpful for me. This is not saying that if you just trust in God more, that everything is going to work out. Have you heard this text preached in that way before? If you just trust in God enough, then all of us can walk on water. God can do incredible things in your life. I'm not saying that God cannot do incredible things in your life, but that is not what I think this text is getting after, that if we just trust in God more, things will work out. Remember that John the Baptist in the beginning of this chapter was brutally executed. Nobody trusted in God more than John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist literally made the way for Jesus. John the Baptist put his entire trust and entire life and entire faith in God's hands and ended up brutally executed as a result. Just because we trust in God enough does not mean that everything will work out. But when we trust in God's love, And not just that syrupy sweet love, but I mean that like universe-changing love. When we trust in God's love, it can transcend even death. It doesn't just hover over the waters. It can pull us up out. It's hard to have that kind of a trust when our attention begins to fade. You know, think about relationships in your life that you trust implicitly. Likely a, a big foundation of that trust is the attention that you both have paid to one another. 
If you don't feel that kind of trust with God, maybe, maybe you don't. Maybe you wonder if you could cry out and receive Jesus' hand. Maybe we, we ought to consider taking this time of Lent to include just one moment of attention a day. Maybe that attention has faded. Even as a pastor, right, um, I'll admit there are plenty of days that my devotion reading falls to the wayside. There are plenty of days that I think, did I really intentionally pray or did I just say that I've been praying without ceasing, right? Um, I wonder what it would be like if during the rest of the season of Lent we, we included just one moment of attention a day, prayerful meditation, a passage of Scripture, a, a daily devotion, maybe a podcast or an audio book in your car, just something that creates that, that moment of connection that could lead to a deeper spiritual trust. Because when we trust that God's love is greater than the storms that surround us, then suddenly our own concern with escaping the sea grows smaller. What do I mean by that? You know, I wonder where Peter thought he was heading on the water. But I know where Jesus was headed. Because in verse 32 it says this, When they got into the boat, the wind settled down. When they got into the boat, the wind settled down. Don't miss that. And then those in the boat, it said, worship Jesus and said, you must be God's son. You know, I was reading and reflecting on this passage, and I came across a reflection by a professor of New Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary. Her name is Dr. Mitzi J. Smith. And she offered a really interesting perspective on this text that I'm not sure I'd heard before, and I want to share it with you now. She said, sometimes we like Peter, she's referring to Peter, we want our own miracle at the expense of others who are in the same boat as us. Jesus reached out His hand and caught Peter, and they both got into the boat with each other, or with the other disciples. It's when they are all in the boat together with Jesus that the winds calm down. Sometimes we want our own miracle at the expense of others who are in the same boat as us. Oof. Did Dr. Smith just step on your toes like she did on mine? You know, you have this miracle that appears to be individual, sandwiched in between these two miracles, feeding the 5,000 and, and healing the masses, in between these two miracles for the masses. And, and what does that say? That Peter was unable to walk on water for long, but that the hungry and the sick received what they needed within community. That the storm only stilled when all were gathered together in the boat. You know, I think it's good for us to establish this early in our series, this Lent, this series called Searching for a Miracle. Let's establish this. Can it really be a miracle if it's experienced in isolation? Or is God's grace and activity amongst us always meant to be shared? Can it really be a miracle if it's experienced in isolation? Or is God's grace and activity amongst us always meant to be shared? Jesus' goal was not to help Peter walk on water, but to still the storm for all that he loved. He didn't walk away from the shore just to go get Peter to bring him back. He was walking to the boat. Perhaps the miracle of walking on water begins when we head away from the safety of the shore and instead towards those boats that are battered by the waves. After his long night of grieving and prayer and rest and tears and wholeness, Jesus looks out and sees a storm and hears the screams and he starts walking. So what then? What do we do with this? 
What do we do with this miracle? What does it mean to walk on water in our lives? This miracle confronts our natural individualistic natures and reveals that walking on water gets us to boats, not to the shore. In Matthew 14, the miracle takes place when all are filled, all are safe, all are healed. That's when the miracle is complete. Such miracles are possible in our world today when we see ourselves as siblings in the same boat. As we debate the merits of minimum wage increases, wouldn't it be a miracle if this could be a land where a living wage was treated as a right and not a luxury? As we continue to endure the pandemic, wouldn't it be a miracle if all people had equitable access to the gift of vaccination, transcending the systemic barriers of race or wealth or education? And as we simply go about our daily lives, would we leave the privilege of the mountaintop, see the storm and hear the screams upon the sea, and rather than saying, thank you, God, for the miracle of escaping that, would we instead say, God, set my feet to walking?